Welcome to episode three of the Reboot Insiders podcast. Today's episode is part one of a recent talk Jimmy had with Dr. Travis Ficklin, a professor of exercise science at Dixie State University, and Dr. Robin Lund, the pitching coach at the University of Iowa. The three focus on why physics is an important tool and how great coaches are the key to driving change. Be on the lookout for part two of this talk coming soon. Please enjoy Jimmy's conversation with Travis and Robin. First, I'll just introduce Reboot Insiders again for people who might be joining us for the first time. This is just supposed to be simply a forum where uh, people who are really interested in baseball, technology, making players better, math, science, physics, where we can all gather and learn from each other and have awesome discussions. We welcome questions. No question is too crazy, too out there. Any questions you have, throw them in the Q&A. We'll try to get to all of them. We think collaboration is super important here. So that's what this is all about. It's about collaboration between coaches, scientists, players, business people. We just want to make athletes better, however we can. So I'll let you guys introduce yourselves, Robin or Travis. My name is Travis Ficklin. I am a biomechanist at Dixie State University, which most of you will not realize is actually in Utah with a name like that and uh, with a name that's probably getting changed here within the next year. But I've been here for about five years. I'm lucky enough to get invited to this party because I know Robin, he and I were colleagues and research mates at University of Northern Iowa before we took the jobs we're in now. And that has forever changed the, uh, the course of my research and thinking life. I was lucky enough to get introduced to Jimmy through Robin. And uh, we now talk to each other weekly and bounce stuff off each other. And to me, it's a kick in the pants. So I couldn't be more thrilled to be here. So thanks for having me. Of course. I'm Robin Lund. Like Travis said, I'm a reformed professor. I was a <laughs> reluctant professor, so to speak. I, I coached college baseball at a young age in my 20s. And then my wife and I started having children and I pivoted, got a PhD, wound up at the University of Northern Iowa, had an 18-year academic career there. was lucky enough to have Travis work with me for about six or seven years, five or six years. Something like that. Yep. And my, my training is actually not in biomechanics. Everything I know about biomechanics, Travis taught me while he was at UNI. And so I'm an amateur, a little out of my depth here, but as a somebody who's now applying this stuff on a daily basis. Like I, Travis had just mentioned, I just recently changed jobs. I'm now back in baseball. And so I'm the pitching coach at, at the University of Iowa. Yeah, thanks, Robin. No, this is awesome. I'm really excited that I got a chance to meet Travis and Robin. It's just, it's awesome in this industry, how I think once you're like in the industry, it's a close-knit community and just connections happen and you meet cool people who are really smart and you get to collaborate. So I'm really glad that we, we got to meet and we can chat about this stuff. I'm sure a lot of people on this call already know who I am. So I'll be really super brief with my introduction. So I'm Jimmy Buffy. My background is in mechanical engineering. Then I got a PhD in biomechanics. And then I worked for the LA Dodgers for close to five years figuring out how to use biomechanics to make players better. And a big part of my job was like collaborating with coaches like Robin and like really learning how to make this stuff actionable, learning what can be used, what can't be used. And it was incredible. And we had a Reboot Insiders talk about a month ago where we talked about different motion capture technologies. And the thing that convinced me to leave my job at the Dodgers and start Reboot Motion was the progress of motion capture technology. It went from five years ago where you had to stick all those balls all over your body and it was a terrible experience to now you can just 
capture motion just from an iPhone. And when I was like, oh, wow, motion capture data is going to be super accessible. That's, that's when I was like, oh, there's an opportunity to start a company helping people make the most out of this motion capture data. So first I'll introduce exactly what I was thinking we could speak about today. And last, like I said, the last time we did this, we talked about different motion capture technologies as a precursor to where we're going now, which is once we have that motion data, how do we actually analyze it and get something useful out of it? And specifically what I really wanted to focus on today was how we can use physics to make it more actionable. Because in my experience, like where I started with biomechanics, it was a lot of just people applying statistical principles, which are great, but I think adding physics really adds a whole other layer. So that's why we titled this using physics to drive change, because I think layering physics and physics is inherently a part of biomechanics, but then I think people tend to separate them a little bit. So I think bringing the physics back in can really help us get a lot out of it. But before I really like dive in. I was thinking we could try to actually maybe define biomechanics really quickly because people throw this term around all the time and they say biomechanics and I feel like it's gotten a certain, certain connotations attached to it. But I was thinking like maybe we could first start by defining it. So I don't know, Travis, you gave a good, a good one earlier today when we chatted. You want to start? Sure. Because I, when people ask what I do and I tell them I'm a biomechanist, they, they don't necessarily know what that is. So I will just tell them that I study the physics of human movement. Super oversimplified, but it's really the, I think it's the nut of the whole thing is those mechanical principles, mm -hmm. those Newton Newtonian mechanical principles at the core of it all. And so I think it works. I'm glad you brought physics up because that's kind of my, <laughs> my favorite part of this. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let Robin back clean up here because I love his explanation from a practical perspective. So I'll just chime in like the word biomechanics. I think it like, it has the definition literally in the name. It's like Principles of mechanics, right? Force equals mass times acceleration. Torque equals inertia times angular acceleration. So it's really applying those principles of mechanics to biology. And the biology here is it's the human body. But that's like a scientific definition. I loved how Robin described it just from an, a practical perspective earlier. Yeah, for me, it's like from a coaching perspective, it's uh, describing human motion in an objective way. I give a lot of talks to at coaches clinics and I'll bring up biomechanics and I'll talk about motor learning and those things. And I just tell them that in its simplest way, biomechanics is literally the what it's just describing what we're seeing in the human movement that can be qualitative or quantitative too. And I think people forget about that, that you can do a really robust description of what's happening. And that's essentially a, a form of a evaluation or assessment. And then if you're lucky, you can get in and maybe explain why these things are happening that, that you're looking at. Yeah, for sure. And, and I want to actually like hone in on the word why. We're going to dive into this, but I think like we're going to talk about today, like typical biomechanical analyses, like I said, they're generally focused on like statistical comparisons and statistical comparisons are awesome at telling if two things are different, but they're not so great at telling why one thing is different than the other. And I think that's a really important part of what we're going to chat about today. But th so the first thing I do, I want to do though, before we really dive into some of the nitty gritty. We're, again, we're talking about physics and I think, I don't know, Travis, if you want to take a shot at just like generally describing movement and, and I'm going to, I have some thoughts here, but I, I want to like give you a shot since I know this is your thing of movement. Like how would you describe movement in a physics perspective? What is movement? 
Yeah. So Robin brought up qualitative analysis, which is hugely important, right? That's where application is a part of things. Good coaches can watch somebody move. So let's say we wanted to talk about a pitcher. Uh, a, a good coach is going to be able to watch that pitcher and see things very well and know some things that need to change. And the more experience that coach has, the more pitchers that he's seen, the, be the better information he can give. So then if you add a layer to that with maybe some video capture, or you add a, a layer to that with even slow motion video capture, now you're able to stop things, forward things, back things up. You have more in-depth qualitative analysis. And then, but if you add to that, now you get to maybe measure some things, right? So maybe you rely on like the old school of digitization, which I don't think ever really goes away to be honest with you, but so now you have measurable things. So to me, and the way I break this thing, this down for my students is there's really two ways you're going to look at most things. You're going to look at things from a kinematic perspective, which is you're going to describe the motion that you actually saw so that you can measure things, you can calculate things. Those things might involve positions, velocities, accelerations. Those can be linear things. Those can be angular or rotational things. And then you can connect that information to a kinetic analysis. And so now you're going to start talking about things like forces and you're going to start talking about things like torques, which are going to influence the motion that's happening linearly and influence the motion that's happening angularly. So once you reach a level where you're measuring more things, now you have a record, or as Robin put it, you have the what. And that's something that somebody like me can do well enough, but then you have to apply that at some point, right? There's, you, you can go around describing everything you want, but you have to go beyond what to so what. And then as Robin put it, the why, and that's where people like me have to work together with people like Robin yeah. to, to use the information. Yeah, yeah, sure. Definitely. And I want to add like the what, the why, I like to think about movement in a very like generic general sense, just from a physics standpoint, as a human, like this applies to walking, this applies to anytime you move as humans, right? We push on the ground and the ground pushes back and those ground reaction forces add energy and momentum to our bodies. And then when we're talking about cause and effect, it's those forces and that energy and momentum that flows through our body that creates movement, like energy and momentum are like literal movement. And that's how I think about all movement. And that's how I think like we can really start to get at, like Travis was saying, the influence of certain things on other things. But actually we got a, we already got a few questions from the panel, so I, I don't want to keep them waiting. So this is a really good point that Art made. We're talking about biomechanics from a very like broad general scope, but we can also talk about the biomechanics at a very small scope. We can talk about the biomechanics of bones, right? Sure. Stress on a bone, how does a bone fracture? We can talk about the biomechanics at an even smaller level. It's literally applying me mechanical principles to the human body. But we got a, we got a, a question from somebody. And uh, yeah, I wasn't planning on getting to th this till a lot later, but I think it's okay to, to bring it up now. The question is, would you say the hardest part of biomechanics is trying to explain it to people? <laughs> like trying to explain it to players. And I think, Robin, you're probably the most qualified to, to answer this one. So you, would you say that's hard or easy or how would you describe it? I, I guess I would say it doesn't matter. It's critical. Like it's so important that it doesn't matter if it's hard or easy. And so 
for me, I've spent a lot of the last year and a half in this new position, drawing on all my experiences as a teacher. So for 18 years as a professor, when Travis left, I actually had to teach biomechanics for about six years before I left. And yeah, it's taking those concepts and making them digestible. So a couple of thoughts, I don't shy away from big words and I don't, I'll use things like kinetics and kinematics and I'll talk to those things. I, I don't, I'll say adduction, like I'll use those words with my guys, but I just make sure I define them first and, and I make sure that they understand them. So our guys are actually pretty, pretty slick, or even though none of them are really um, exercise science majors, they understand a lot, a lot more than you would think. So yeah, I think it, it's a challenge, but it's so important that it, it's one of those things where you can't make a change unless the kid really gets what we're trying to do. And they have to be, and they have to believe you that if you make this change, it's an important change. It's going to help you. But I use a lot of, I use a lot of video. I use, I, I produce little videos for the guys and a lot of comparisons. I find a lot of videos of guys that I think move really well. And I just, I do it that way. Bring in a lot of science, a lot of anatomy, and then sell the heck out of it. Yeah. And I just want to add too, I think a big, well, I'll speak for myself. I feel a big part of my job is almost like being like a biomechanics translator, <laughs> right? Like I, I went to school for a long time, longer than, <laughs> longer than I want to discuss. And Travis did too. And Robin did too. We all went to school for a very long time. But the way I see it is coaches are already talking in biomechanics, right? Saying move faster down the mound or keep your shoulder closed or lift your lead arm higher. Like things that you're saying, you are instructing somebody to move their body in a certain way. And that is like literally biomechanics. I think what you can really think about it as that's like the application of the biomechanics. The coach is like doing almost like an internal biomechanical calculation in their brain. That's if we keep the shoulder closed longer, it will transfer more energy from the lower half to the upper half, which will then allow you to throw harder. So I think actually, to me, it's not about it being super hard to explain. It's, I actually think it's actually, it's more about connecting the physics and these like really fancy terms and quantities to things that we're already saying and doing. Like coaches are already doing biomechanics. I don't know, Travis, would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I would, and, and it leads me to a question I would ask Robin, which is, so somebody like me is most likely to interact with somebody like Robin. That's how my normal professional life works. I don't necessarily directly communicate with athletes. I will at times, and they ask questions, and I answer questions and, and so forth. But really, if I can understand what it is that coaches say to athletes, and if I can understand that vernacular and then translate numbers that I measured or Things like, and say, get down the mound faster translates to this variable. It's connected to this yeah. variable. And then I trust somebody like a Robin to be able to say, to decide how much of that really needs to be explained to the athlete, which athletes can handle knowing more, which athletes need to know less because they just can't, they're not the type of athlete you'd want thinking too much while they're in the act of performing and so on and so forth. So there's a couple of layers to that, right? There's there's really the number of things you can measure far exceeds the number of things that are worth measuring and worth <laughs> communicating about in my estimation. And so maybe I'm the first filter in that whole pipeline of things. But then I think somebody like Robin is the next filter in that. And because of the fact that he knows his athletes, he knows their mental and psychological makeup, he can do some things to decide, you know, how much, but I will say this because I've known coaches, maybe not in baseball, but other sports and things like that, that basically carry around with them a gigantic lookup table. If mm -hmm. they notice a technique flaw, 
Yeah. They have an, an instant list association with here's the fix for it. And they may not ever understand mechanically why that fixes the thing, but their information is good and it fixes the thing. I think that if I do a good job communicating with coaches, maybe, maybe I expand their lookup table, but more importantly, if they come across something that's novel, that's not already in their lookup table, they have just a little bit more ammunition to be able to decide things, try and implement some solution or whatever, or maybe even to have enough savvy and knowledge to know that that's not actually a problem. We're not going to mess with that. We don't need to correct that. And if we do that, we might be coaching athleticism out of somebody. Yeah, that, yeah, that's totally, that's awesome. And I really love the concept of a lookup table. <laughs> that's a yeah. really interesting way of putting it. And we got a few more, man. I, all right. We'll take the first one from my guy, Stephanos the interaction of ground force and biomechanics. Has there been any work with force plates and motion capture at the same time to identify cause and effect relationships? Travis is not, and you want to give this one a shot? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I don't know if this is this commission question is specifically aimed at baseball analysis, but the answer is yes, that synchronization does exist. And most motion capture labs that have both three-dimensional motion capture and force plates, those things are synchronized. From a clinical standpoint, that gives a whole you know array of things that you can do in terms of understanding lower extremity biomechanics. And so maybe you care about things like injury risk, knee injury risk, or, or, or things like that. From a performance standpoint, then you can more directly measure things like impulse and you can connect that impulse that you're measuring that's being generated from the ground. And you can see that impulse is going to change the momentum of the pitcher's body. So I'm, I'm going to go right back to baseball with this. It's going to change the momentum of the pitcher's yeah, and body. Can you, can you define impulse real quick? At its simplest root, impulse is a change in, in momentum. So from a variable standpoint, that would mean some, if we look at forces it'd be some amount of force applied over some duration of time so and, if, you're, if uh, you're stuck on a force plate you're going to see the curve go up and go down and that force over time is the impulse perfect and let's just take it a layer deep layer deeper when you see that force curve over time the area under that curve that's the impulse so the bigger that area is the more momentum has been generated in that body but then if you couple that because the question talks about synchronizing that with with the motion capture now you can see all right where did that momentum go how much of it's in the lower half of the body how much of it's in the trunk how much of it's in different segments of the arm and that gets me pretty enthusiastic yeah to summarize a little bit i think force plates are so important because like i talked about the initiation of the movement of the thing is always pushing on the ground what's really cool to think about is just like the ground like the earth is obviously massive relative to a human body. So we push on the ground, it doesn't budge, but it pushes on us and we can budge just because the ground is so much more mass than us. And like understanding the direction that you're applying those forces, that's the thing that starts at all. And so I think, yeah, if you have force plates, awesome. And I think this actually dovetails nicely into question, a question from Art about how many programs use biomechanical analysis tools in college and the pros? I'll answer the pros real quick. It's escalating super quick. I don't know. I would estimate like probably more than half of MLB teams now have motion capture technology and are exploring using biomechanics. And us at Reboot Motion, are, uh, we're working with a few teams ourselves on biomechanics. So it's really, I think we're approaching like a golden age of biomechanics and baseball. Biomechanics Society was just started by Dr. Glenn Fleissig and ASMI. So I think we're approaching a golden age in baseball for this. Let's see. Collegiately, there's just, there's, I, I believe there's only one college program with like an, their own actual 
motion capture lab. I think that's Wake Forest. Did I see Georgia Tech tweet something out about? We've got a new, yeah, building a new facility. I'm not sure if they'll have motion capture in there. I know quite a few programs will take advantage of labs that are on campus. How much of that is so we can tweet out a picture, a video of a stick figure. So people think we use this stuff and how much <laughs> actual decisions about guys, but it's not, I don't think at the college level, full blown three-dimensional motion capture, but just daily and analyzing video, I think is being done at varying levels of efficacy up and down the country. I'm sure. Yeah. It's, I think it's worth noting that all universities are going to have a biomechanist somewhere on campus. Not all of them necessarily care much about sport performance, let alone baseball. And there's various reasons for that, but a lot of the economic incentives on a campus have to do with grant writing and clinical research because it, it draws that kind of money. A lot of times you will find maybe somebody who's a clinical biomechanist, but who actually really loves the sport performance and can do it on the side or, or do it as hobby projects. But it's not always a natural fit. A lot of places probably wouldn't hire me because I'm not going to write for NIH grants. I, it's not something that drives me quite like trying to understand run faster, jump higher, throw harder. So I think that's worth noting. We're talking about uh, a lot of this in the context of sport performance, but a huge amount of bio, actual biomechanical work is clinical in nature and really doesn't examine performance. I would add too that it, that's a skill in and of itself. So just because just you're a biomechanist and you're just like, oh yeah, I'll analyze, I'll analyze your kid's swing. That doesn't mean you're going to be any good at it. You may understand some physics and biomechanics, but there's a lot of nuance to this game too. And I know that Jimmy, I'm sure you're much better at it today than you were eight years ago. And yeah, just going into a lab and having somebody collect one, one pitch or one swing on you. And then that's, I don't know if that's worth very much. Yeah. So I think we, man, we have a ton of awesome questions and some of these are super specific. So I'm going to save some of these really specific questions for a, in a little bit. But Mike Ressler just asked, and maybe Robin and Travis, you can answer this one real quick. Mike asked, given we can measure so much, what areas of research are you both most excited about exploring? <laughs> so I'm, I'm somewhat of a methodology geek. So I, I get pretty excited about being able to fine tune methods to do things like better determine uh, real variability separate from error variability because and then I'm also going along with that, I think all the time about limitations of different methods of collecting data, right? So if a lim there's limitations in markered motion capture, there's limitations in markerless motion capture. And so what could those limitations be hiding from us and how do we try and overcome those? But that said, I'm really interested in, there's two things that get my brain going lately. One is attaching biomechanical measurable things to, to deception on the part of a pitcher. I kind of got sparked on that based on a study I read some time ago that had to do with kinematic analysis of penalty kicks and what things were most likely to, to fool a goalie. And I think that's right up there with where, when a, when a hitter is tipped to pitches, when a hitter is, is reading a pitcher, what biomechanical tips might there be? And because uh, it's probably much deeper than just arm slot, if you think about where your eyes probably pick up first and so on and so forth. So I'm excited about that. And then I'm also excited about biomechanical changes that come with fatigue, right? So not just in pitching yeah. delivery, but then actually maybe even at the muscle fiber level, those types of things get me pretty enthused. For me, I totally applied now. My, my research questions are driven by issues I'm dealing with particular players. And I have three really hard throwers. I have three kids that are, that are pretty, they had to wind it up or are going to be north of 95 and they're under 2000 RPM spin rate. So 
they're low spin, high below guys. And so Mike even knows some of this stuff that we've been messing around yeah. with diamond kinetics ball. And we used our hydrotronic cameras and we were able to actually increase the spin rate on two of those guys, like by 300 RPM on two of them, but not the other one. And I don't know how we did it. So I want to keep <laughs> digging. And this is an area of that. I think a lot of people have maybe given up on that, that spin rate is this inherent thing that you can either do, or you can't do be high spin rate or not. And I guess I'm not ready to give up on that yet. So that's an area that I'm interested in. No, definitely don't give up. <laughs> we have a lot of ideas. I think like, it's just hard because it's a really hard thing to measure. But I think once we get better at measuring it, which we're doing with all these tools, like the, the pitch tracker ball, the diamond kinetics is developing um, high speed cameras. I think as we get better at measuring it, I think we'll be able to get at that question. We got a ton of awesome questions. All right. Emilio asked, piggybacking on the lines of impulse and even force plate integration, what is the first step in moving away from a rigid body analysis and actually determining deformation in certain body parts segments under different applied forces. I think Emilio studies this stuff. So it sounds like he's trying to, what I'll try to rephrase a little bit. So it sounds like what he's trying to get at is, and Emilio, please put another question if I don't get this right. What is the first step in actually getting a little bit more granular and actually an analyzing like how the force actually changes like smaller body parts, like maybe a ligament or like a bone or something like that. How do we go away? How do we move from this really big picture biomechanical analyses into something that's a little bit more granular and maybe literally start to calculate the load on the ulnar collateral ligament or something like that? I don't know if one of you guys want to take, wants to take a shot at that. That's a pretty, it's a pretty tough question, but I think a really good one. So I got two things to say about that. One, Jimmy, I think you should take a shot at that because I know <laughs> you've done a bunch, you've done a bunch of that modeling and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and probably have been a long ways down the road of finite element analysis. But that said, I'll even take it one step further. And, and this is going to be me totally avoiding answering Emilio's question because he's got us in a headlock here. So this is me kind of tapping out a little bit, but there's even more to it than that. If, if you think about if you think about, for example, elbow joint loads, right? Joint force and torque at the elbow. We calculate that based upon a whole bunch of assumptions. And one of those assumptions is that the pitcher's arm is very similar to all of the, we'll call them inertial parameters. So say, for example, his forearm is very similar to all the forearms from which we derive segmental mass and moment of inertia data. So moment of inertia being how hard is it to rotate the forearm on this axis versus this axis, which we ignore and, and so forth. Because a certain amount of that segment is muscular and because muscles basically like a sloshing bag of water, when you're, a, when you are, when you're executing a pitch, the moment of inertia, I would expect it actually to change a little bit. That's a really disconcerting thought. You have to, at a certain point, you have to accept some limitations to your mathematical model. The, the current one that we use turns these segments into rigid bodies because it's the most, it's the most sanity preserving model. But I've seen segments modeled as damped mass spring systems and it gets really messy really quick. And I think if you really want accurate stuff to even look at that granular level of ulnar collateral ligament, that's the kind of stuff you're going to have to do. I think it's really hard. I think, I think mathematical modeling and simulation is probably going to be an effective way to try and do that kind of stuff because to measure it in vivo during a pitch using current motion capture technology is really hard. Yeah, Maybe well, impossible at this point. Yeah, I think we can blend actually that. I think 
segues nicely into two other questions that we got. Art asked about integrated EMG. I thought we were going to ignore EMG. <laughs> well, but to get at, and if we want to start to get at like really understanding what's going on, the muscles, the ligaments, we really have to understand like what the muscles are doing because there's a bunch of stuff that crosses your elbow, for example, a bunch of muscles, a bunch of ligaments. And because the muscles are redundant, right? You have a bunch pulling this way, a bunch pulling this way. You don't really know how to distribute the forces among all of those things. The only way you can really do that, if you stick a wire in the muscles or slap an electrode on it and measure the EMG. I know people have done it. It's not pleasant, but I think, yeah, if we, if we want to start to get more and more granular, I think we need to start to figure out better ways of, of understanding what the muscles are doing and also more and more accurate motion capture, which I think Miles asked, could we talk about the trade-offs between basically lab-based high accuracy analyses versus in-game data, but at the possible expense of data quality, which I think you want to do the, you want to start to get at really granular things. You need more accurate information, but Robin or Travis, you, you want to chat about that for a second? I mean, for us, if we were, we're raising money right now, like we want to have our own motion capture lab. And for us, like it, to me, it's even at the expense of a little bit of accuracy, we would have to go markerless because of just time constraints. And we just, we only have these guys for 20 hours a week and any data that we collected would be part of those countable athletically related, you know, activities, those care hours that we have to put in. And so I would want to get the data collected markerless. And then all of the work would be done on the backside. And I personally would, if there was a trade-off in accuracy, I would be willing to give a little bit up just for the speed of data collection. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it comes in this trade-off. I think a lot of it comes down to what you're trying to get out of it. If you are really interested in understanding super granular, the stretch of the ulnar collateral ligament or something like that, you need something that is super accurate that you might not actually be able to apply in a game setting for Robin's purposes, if he's just trying to figure out, you know, about how high should this person like lift their lead arm to generate or to transfer a momentum to their torso, you don't need something super accurate and super, super granular. That's something that you might even be able to see on video. If, if Robin is, is interested in maybe messing with somebody's stride length, right? You don't need something that's really super accurate to really understand stride, stride length. So I think this trade-off versus like super accurate lab setting versus game setting, or maybe something that's a little bit easier to capture is really about what you're trying to get out of it. I think is, is a big part of that. Uh, Travis, did you have anything to add there? Yeah. I, yeah. Trade-offs, the key word. I like the word trade-off because yeah. the, the, the truth of the matter is there are some, there are some issues with marker capture that you avoid by going markerless too. Like right. you don't have skin movement artifact, for example. And, and then yeah. even the, the thing that maybe sometimes people don't understand is that even with marker motion capture, you still have to mathematically model joint centers. And that's dependent on a lot of things as well, yeah. like marker placement, whether or not those things moved, like you better hope you not have, don't have a super sweaty pitcher and stuff like that. And, and anyways, all that said, I think one of the great trade-offs is, yeah, you get game data, which is, that is, that's their performance. It's, yeah, if you want everything they can give to a pitch. It's going to happen in a game. It's not going to happen in your lab. It's going to probably be close in the lab because it's such a highly repeatable motion, but Still, there's no substitute for game-like conditions for really driving the full motion out of somebody. And then the other thing is, 
not only do you get that, but you get a lot more trials. So you have the opportunity mm -hmm. there to have a large number of trials for a given pitcher that goes into his aggregate sample. Yeah. And so that kind of stabilizes what you consider to be his delivery. Yeah. Um, the, the, yeah. The, the extremes of measurement air yeah. wash out over time when you do that. Yeah. And just to piggyback on your point of the game is the pitcher's performance. If you're trying to like understand something about injury risk and you use data that you get in a lab, let's look at how hard this person is throwing in a lab. What's funny. Sometimes I see like these biomechanical analyses of injury risk. And then I look at the person's average velocity and it's 82 miles an hour. And I'm like, let's look at what he throws in the game. Oh, he's 95 miles an hour. Do we think that the forces that he's using when he's throwing 82 miles an hour are the same as the forces he's using when he's throwing 95 miles an hour? So I think you got to be really cognizant of trying to apply lab-based data to what someone is actually doing in a game. Sometimes I know that there are cases where people do throw hard and get to game-like conditions in a lab, but I think you got to be really careful there. And Leslie asked, and I think that this piggybacks off something that we were just chatting about with, again, going back to how do we understand things that are going on in a very like granular way. Leslie asked if we need a giant motion MRI machine. It was really cool. I thought about trying to see if I could use one of these, but it's, have you ever seen, I think it's called like an X-ROM, either of you, X-ray of moving morphology? No. <laughs> it's really cool. There's a lab at Brown that I was thinking about collaborating with where it's literally like a high speed X-ray machine. So it's for like specifically capturing the motion of a bone over time. It's like literally measuring the bone. The problem is it's, it's a high speed X-ray machine. <laughs> so you're exposing somebody to a lot of radiation, ton of X-rays over, and also these machines, you've seen them, they're massive. Yeah. And you know, you, usually the lens is super small. So if you're trying to get the elbow, right? Okay, I think the elbow is going to be right there. Okay, did we get it or did we not get it? That's what you're doing with an edutronic for release. But yeah. The stakes are a little higher, and I'll bet time in their lab is really costly because I'm betting that's not a cheap machine. Yeah. But as far as the exposure to x-rays, I think we did say there are trade-offs. <laughs> yeah, but to, to, to talk about how we can use that stuff, though, to help us here, I think one thing that we can do is in like a lab-based setting, we yeah. can measure things about muscle mechanics, right? Like we can, you know, measure how much force somebody can exert with a bicep. We can measure like the stiffness of something. We can measure, yeah, like material properties of the UCL using an ultrasound. And then what's cool, part of my PhD was using a computer model. So now we can take measure those properties in a lab setting, put them into a computer model and then simulate the delivery. So I think like modeling is a really good way to, we talked about this earlier, but a really good way of, using those lab-based measurement tools to apply, to start to get at things that are more granular, but it's also always important to remember that that's just a model, right? So it might tell you some things, but you gotta be careful about understanding your assumption. Totally agree, but it also probably tells you more than we can currently yeah. do. You can yeah. play around with your model. And if you can forwardly dynamically simulate a pitch based on what you think should go into that model, you might be wrong, but you're wrong it's there's a high probability that you're in the ballpark because getting all of those things to be just right to to cause the motion that you've been measuring through inverse dynamics you're barking up a good path there. there's no way to really ever know for sure because it's all in vivo right it's all in a living yeah. breathing human being whose arm is functioning and so you don't really ever get a look inside that thing during the pitch it's just really hard unless you have one of these 
XROMs, but, <laughs> but even then, maybe that maybe you can't execute a, a max effort pitch in one of those yet, but maybe that's coming. I don't know. Thank you for listening to the Reboot Insiders podcast. Be on the lookout for future episodes. And as always, feel free to reach out at insiders at rebootmotion.com or on Twitter at rebootmotion.